Digitalizing your business for the new normal? Enjoy all-in-one solutions covering e-commerce, marketing, remote working, even HR management. Stay connected 24-7 while you boost your business efficiency and expand your customer reach. Claim your 5,000 ringgit Banjana SME Digitalization Grant and save up to 70% with Go Digital with DG Business, Malaysia's largest internet network. To apply, visit dg.my slash go digital. This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. FM 89.9, the business station. My name is Rich Bradbury, and this is Matt Splained. Last week, uh, we looked at the hidden chaos that legacy systems and code uh, might unleash on the world. So this week, Matt Splained tries to move back to the positives with another edition of Science is Slick. Matt, um, it's a bit early for another one of these, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, I, I usually try and leave about four weeks between them, but I didn't want to miss out on reporting back on one of these stories that I discussed with Jeff, I think, on Geek Squawks earlier this year. So that was a story about NASA holding a competition to design better toilets for its astronauts, especially the Artemis moon mission scheduled for 2024. Uh, because, of course, you know, NASA has zero-G toilets, but nothing yet that deals with the gravity of the moon, because previous missions to the moon have been too short for them to require lunar gravity toilets. Uh, so that, of course, is going to be essential for the kind of longer-term stays that are planned with all of these missions moving forward. Uh, so... I'm sure that most people will have heard already that the winner of the Lunar Lu Challenge junior category was actually a, a young Malaysian guy from yeah. Setia Alam. Yeah, uh, Zaisam Kang. Uh, as I said, I'm not going to talk about this too much because it's been widely reported and, you know, a lot of people already know the details. But what particularly impressed the judges about Zyson's design was the fact that it uses kinetic energy rather than requiring physical power. So it pulls the urine and the feces away from the body through a tube uh, and then it crystallizes them and then they're stored in a container in the astronaut's boots. So because of that, it actually has real world here on earth type applications as well it can potentially be adapted for people like uh, first responders in the pandemic people on engineering projects or disaster relief efforts anyone essentially that has to spend long periods working in situations where getting to a toilet isn't possible or could potentially risk someone else's life and that's from a nine-year-old boy. You know, it's quite astonishing. Uh, he's definitely someone with a great brain, and he's definitely likely to have a very big impact on the world. Yep. Um, do you want to talk about those new holographic screens that are kind of uh, being released onto the internet right now? Well, I did, but then I realised that explaining how a holographic screen works on radio is likely to be one of the most boring bits of broadcasting of the year. So I think the best thing we can say is that Samsung has come up with a prototype for a screen that can render high-res uh, 3D vi video in a hollow screen thin enough to fit into a cell phone. Now, it is a game-changer technology-wise. I suggest you Google it to get a better idea of what the screen looks like and how it actually works. 
But I guess what really interests me is how interested people are going to be in this product. Right. Screen makers, television makers, they've all but given up on 3D TVs. So the question remains, did consumers resist those 3D TVs because they had to wear bulky eyewear? Or are just 3D screens not really something that people want? Mm. You know, are they just something that looks cool for sci-fi movies, but in practicality aren't actually that appealing? Now, obviously, time will tell. Uh, for now, I guess we can have a, a, a real story, which is uh, another follow-up to something we covered earlier in the year. Let me guess. SpaceX. Yeah, so we were really excited about the successful tests of SpaceX's Dragon manned space module earlier mm. this year. Its first official mission took place on the 15th of November, uh, taking off from NASA's Kennedy Space Center with a payload of uh, four astronauts destined for the International Space Station. Now, after a 27-hour flight, the rocket docked successfully with the ISS, bringing the three US and one Japanese astronaut to the place that will be their new home for the, the next few months. The astronauts are going to uh, remain on board until uh, SpaceX sends a new crew and relieves them in April 2021. Now, Elon Musk didn't actually attend the launch. He was uh, unwell. I think he had some kind of infection. So he thought it was uh, wiser to stay away. And NASA is also limiting guests at launches due to the coronavirus. So it's hoped that shuttles built by Boeing uh, and uh, uh, the ones from SpaceX will also become part of this regular rotation of craft ferrying astronauts and equipment to and from the ISS. But it really shows how much we're opening up space. Do you think this expansion is uh, trend-based, uh, capturing the zeitgeist, or, or do you think it's part of a, a permanent expansion? It's difficult to say, I think. I'd say it's permanent. Now, there are real commercial opportunities from launching satellites to resupplying and supporting national space agencies. It's probably true to say that a lot of the new space moguls, uh, Musk and Bezos amongst them, a part of the Star Wars and Star Trek generation. Yeah. You know, that idea of boldly going where no one has gone before has become much more than a cheesy tagline for a low-budget space opera from the 1960s and 70s. So for some people, I think it's become much more profound than that. It's become a kind of guiding principle for them. And I think it may also be linked to disappointment about those original space programs. You know, when I was a kid, it was only a decade or so after the moon landings, and we thought we'd be on Mars. Yet somehow in the 80s and 90s, the national mood shifted away from space. So I do wonder if some of this activity now is fueled by people like me, whose fantasies of that space future from their youth have been unmet. Yeah. So certainly, you know, the number of agencies and companies capable of sending people and material beyond our atmosphere keeps increasing. And even if most people don't really care too much about space exploration these days, the potential for unlocking new knowledge really is staggering. In fact, uh, earlier this year, a private space company called Axiom announced that it would be sending a habitat capsule to dock with the ISS in 2024. The company plans to add to that module to construct the first privately owned long-term space habitat 
by the end of this decade. So I think what we have to try and do with all of this activity is avoid everyone calling dibs on all the resources and the minerals out there so that we do keep space open for everyone. Okay, uh, let's stick with space. Uh, I believe um, a new procedure for using microbes to break down space rocks has been discovered. Well, so this is another ISS-related story. Uh, a company called BioRocks has been looking at ways of replicating bacterial mineral extraction, which is something that happens both naturally and commercially on Earth. Now, I didn't realize this, but according to a report I read in MIT Tech Review, around 20% of the world's copper and gold is extracted using bacterial processes, essentially allowing bacteria to eat away the rock. Now, obviously, you can't replicate a copper mine on the ISS. Uh, digging through a space hull is never really a great idea. <laughs> so the experiments were carried out in matchbox-sized biomining containers that had uh, various single-celled organisms and uh, a sample of basalt rock. Um, did they test for the uh, effects of uh, different gravity? Yeah, they simulated Earth, Mars and Moon gravity over a period of about three weeks. Uh, basalt was uh, chosen because it's found in large quantities near the surface of the Moon uh, on, uh, uh, and on both of our planets, um, or rather on Earth and on Mars. The results were pretty positive. One of the three strains tested, which is Sphingonomus desiccabilis, proved to work about as well in low gravity as it does here on Earth. Now, in case anyone is wondering why this is important, well, extractive mining processes on other worlds would be faster, but you're basically waiting for an organism to eat its way through a solid object and leave behind the ores and minerals you want. So it is quite a slow process. It's a lot slower than digging a hole, chucking it in a low loader and crushing, melting and separating out the minerals and of course the spoil. And presumably it cuts down on the amount of uh, equipment that you need. Yes. Yeah, so the biggest problem about building any kind of self-sustaining off-world human populations are those supplies and equipment. It takes a long time to supply Mars. You can't just order grab. And you want to maximize the load with as much stuff. So you want to take uh, fewer bulky, heavy items. You might eventually get to the point where you can extract all the resources you need to produce that plant and machinery locally. But using these biological processes is a way of jump-starting that engineering process, extracting and making use of those resources without the need for a lot of external heavy and expensive equipment and, of course, the monitoring that it'll need. And that could end up being the difference between success or failure for our early attempts to colonize planets like Mars. Now, um, bodily functions uh, seems to be high on the agenda today. Uh, and when we come back, deodorant made from sweat. Mm -hmm. This is Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Banana from Malaysia. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.
BFM 89.9, the business station. I'm Rich Bradbury. Welcome back to Matt's Plane. Of course, I've got uh, Matt Armitage from culturepop.com with me. Uh, and normally I'd let Matt build up to, a, 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 you know, I'd let him build up a bit of tension or, or despair before we head to the really strange stuff. But it's impossible to ignore this one. Matt, um, deodorant made from sweat? Well, this year has been a strange one for all of us, and I'll admit that my attitude to personal hygiene in the work-from-home era has changed a little bit. I often head to my home office before I hit the shower. One thing leads to another, and it's lunchtime, and I realise I'm still wearing what I slept in. So I can almost imagine the mid-afternoon shower becoming time's person or thing of the year for 2020. <laughs> and, you know, just saying of the year 2020, it's also absurd that we're at the end of the start of this new decade already. Yeah. This year never really got started. But, you know, I guess like a lot of people, um, my attitude has been, well, you know, I'm home alone, so why grab the deodorant? It's an expense I can avoid, uh, especially as in my case, most of them irritate me anyway. And delivery priorities have made it less easy to order the natural one, I guess, get from the US. But on the assumption that we will one day resume fairly normal external lives, uh, finding more personalised deodorants could be a step towards that more balanced future. Is this another one of those CRISPR-type stories? No, I mean, it's not uh, as complicated as somebody taking some of your DNA or your RNA and snipping things around. It's a lot simpler than that. It's actually one of those, you know, why did no one think of this type stories? Uh, according to the new scientist, a guy called uh, Jonathan Boreco at Virginia Tech in the US noticed the salt crystals that crusted his arm after he played uh, squash. He had the realization that maybe those salt deposits could be used as a natural antiperspirant. Now, most of the deodorants that we buy, they use metal salts to block the sweat ducts. So uh, Bareko wondered if uh, our own salts could do the same job. With some colleagues, he created artificial sweat ducts with a mineral solution that was identical to human sweat. They used propylene glycol, which is a, a water-absorbing substance often used in cosmetics. Uh, I guess they used it as some kind of accelerant. And it worked. It increased the rate of evaporation of the sweat, and the minerals in the salt formed a plug that stopped the sweat flowing. So the next step will be testing on actual human sweat ducts. So it's not exactly personalized to the individual, but I guess you can imagine some version of the future where it's infused with your personal biochemistry. But it does represent a more natural method to keep us dry and fresh in the future. Interesting. Um, you're sticking with nature for this next story, although I'm not sure about the wisdom of going from sweating to eating. Well, there is a link. You know, we've all heard of uh, meat sweats. Uh, I know I've uh, experienced them when a particularly large steak defeated me. So this story, or a couple of stories really, is about plant-based meat alternatives. I think we reported a few weeks back that the pandemic has seen a rise in demand for plant-based foods, yep. partly because of outbreaks of the virus at meat processing plants in some countries. So there's that confidence in the food chain at issue, but also because people have been at home more. They've been more careful about their diet and, of course, they're eating on the run less often. And as a result, meat substitutes have become a lot more viable for a lot of people. 
Yeah. And as we mentioned, I think a lot of the startups in the plant-based meat market are quite small. So scaling up their business at the same rate that demand is escalating is proving to be a bit of a challenge for some. So others are going the the big route. They're announcing tie-ups with fast food chains. So Impossible Foods and the vegetarian butcher have teamed up with Burger King. And a Russian biotech startup is making plant-based nuggets for KFC, which supposedly should be hitting the street sometime in December. So this is the recent news that McDonald's has also identified the plant-based burger as a trend that it has to be in on. Mm. Unlike the examples that we mentioned above, McDonald's seems intent on developing its own proprietary plant-based meat. Obviously, they're calling it the McPlant and raising the prospect that there could be plant-based versions, not just of its burgers, but products in its nuggets and breakfasts and all sorts of other ranges. So this comes on the back of a, a pilot program that the company ran with the company Beyond last year in Canada, where some stores sold uh, what they called a PLT, I guess standing for plant, lettuce, tomato. Do we know anything about uh, the formulation or the availability? Well, McDonald's is keeping that firmly under wraps for the time being. Uh, Unsurprisingly, I think a lot of the meat alternative companies were jockeying for a slice of the McDonald's pie. But I can see the sense in the company having its own proprietary formulation and controlling that supply chain. So according to company spokespeople, we should see some of the McPlant products rolling out early-ish in 2021, though they haven't given an indication which countries they will be available in first. There has been, you know, a little bit of blowback about the fast food giants trying to get into this area, people saying that it's not really healthy, uh, questioning whether vegetarians should be going into these establishments to eat at them anyway, that kind of thing. Mm. But as far as I'm concerned, you know, it's a positive step. It gives people more alternatives. And making these meat alternatives ubiquitous in these fast food and grab and go food categories is a good way to normalize it and take that stigma away from sampling and uh, you know developing the habit of consuming it okay yeah we've we've discussed this before it's definitely a direction that the food industry is heading in and and not just a trend Yeah, we're seeing a convergence of the business case and the environmental case. So a piece I read on The Guardian's website reported on the announcement by the global food giant Unilever that it is setting a target of 1 billion euros a year uh, in sales of plant-based foods. It's part of what the company is calling its Future Foods Initiative, and it encompasses existing brands as well as new products and labels in its efforts to persuade consumers to switch to healthier and more sustainable non-animal sourced products. Uh, I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago the vegetarian butcher. Now Unilever acquired the Dutch company in 2018 and has expanded its operations to more than 30 countries. Now that's one of the direct avenues. But we'll also see an expansion of items like plant-based and animal-free mayonnaise from Hellman's and more dairy-free ice cream options from Unilever brands like Ben & Jerry's, Walls and Magnum. Do you think that uh, 1 billion euros is an achievable target? Well, it may 
actually underestimate consumer demand. So a report by Barclays in 2019 forecast that the plant-based food segment could be worth as much as $150 billion by 2029. So that 1 billion euros would actually be just under 1% of that global market. So I imagine Unilever actually has its sights set far higher than that. But it also comes on the back of an initiative that aims to halve food waste across the company's business by 2025. And as much as we knock the food giants and their processing methods, without their presence, significant numbers of consumers could see their food prices increase. So for the giants and the fast food companies to be heading in this direction is a really good thing. But there are other steps and sources that we should be looking at to maintain those healthy and balanced diets. Technology-based solutions or or just the common sense ones? Well, obviously, the healthy, balanced diets that doctors with fast food wrappers in the bin often tell us to to follow. (laughs) But sure, you know, technology can help as well. Uh, AI, in fact, uh, not in the sense of saying, Alexa, what is a healthy, balanced diet? Uh, But a team at the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology in Germany has come up with a simple photo-based approach to counting calories. Using the app they're developing, you can take a photo of your food and their system will estimate the number of calories in what you're about to eat, which, of course, is perfect for folks like me who are, let's say, a little bit dysfunctional when it comes to portion control. (laughs) How accurate, then, is, is, is their model? Well, it's early days, so the team built it around a widely available neural network called DenseNet. Uh, The model was trained with around 300,000 photos relating to around 70,000 recipes on a German cooking website. They then tweaked the neural net so that it would estimate the value of the micronutrients within the recipe. So there are a lot of assumptions that have to be made there, that the food a user is uploading conforms quite strictly and follows that that recipe quite strictly. Right. Uh, for a lot of us, you know, that's not particularly likely. Uh, results seem to be within about a 10% error range for food items that uh, it does recognize. For food items and recipes that you know, you're you're going off piste on, the margin of error is closer to 30%. But I would expect that to change because uh, as much as 70,000 recipes and 300,000 pictures sounds like a lot, uh, it's not a great deal for this kind of network. But if someone builds a, a commercial version of this, that data set is likely to expand exponentially. And hopefully then the model will make more accurate predictions. But even at this level of accuracy, it's enough to let you know whether you're eating something that's going to be high or low in calorific value. Uh, you mentioned a, a commercial version. Is there any, any way we can try this? Well, the German team actually uh, put this model together for a paper that they were writing. Uh, you know, those pesky scientists and their quest for knowledge above profits. Very irritating. Um, but they have placed the code on GitHub. So if you're a bit handy at coding, you can create your own version of this test. You know, we always seem to to end these Sciences Slick episodes on AI. It's It's not a deliberate thing. It's just that we're seeing the technology being bent towards all these multiple different uses. Mm. So all of these things, you know, these are good things as far as I'm concerned. We can let the machines do the counting and we can get on with the eating. 
plenty of chips, eh, Matt? Crisps, salt and vinegar. Mm. If uh, if someone can come up with, uh, I mean, I know they're plant-based already, but uh, if someone can come up with a healthier alternative, uh, please send your results direct to me. <laughs> you have been tuned into Science Is Slick here on Matt Splained. My name is Rich Bradbury for BFM Radio. If you missed any part of the show, don't forget you can download the podcast wherever you download it from. And of course, if you're interested in transcripts for this show, you can head over to culturepop.com. This is BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.